You know, one thing that I've thought about a number of different times since the middle of March is that passage in James chapter 4, where as James is writing, he says, uh, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go to this city or that city, we'll spend a year there, we'll carry on business, we'll make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. And maybe you're not familiar with that first half of the verse, but I can guarantee that you've heard in some form what James says next. He says, what you should say is, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. How clearly we've seen that we don't really know what's coming next. Recently, perhaps more than ever, is a time when it makes a lot of sense to add the caveat to our plans of Lord willing, right? We understand at an individual level that our lives can be changed in an instant. So we've always understood, though we don't like to think about it perhaps, that at an individual level it makes sense to say Lord willing. But at a societal level, at a global level, level, we have seen clearly demonstrated for us that anything we plan, anything we think we will do, is only Lord willing. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. And though that truth is more painfully obvious to us now than it was in the past, the fact of the matter is we never have known what will happen tomorrow. And yet, though that's true, we can know, in a big picture sense, what God is doing. We can know, we can see the truth clearly in Scripture, the truth driven home in our passage today, that God's plan is always fruitfulness for those who will demonstrate faithfulness. God's plan is always fruitfulness for those who demonstrate faithfulness. Now let's be clear, we rarely know what form that fruitfulness might take before it manifests itself in our life. And we almost never know exactly when that fruitfulness will come. We don't even know if we'll see it now in this lifetime or if we'll have to wait for eternity to realize it. But as was the case with Joseph and as is the case for all of God's people through the ages, God's plan is to respond with fruitfulness for those who demonstrate faithfulness. Let's read of how that plan plays out for Joseph in Genesis 41 this week. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Genesis 41 and follow along with me as I read. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. And after them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek, fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. 
In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And the things turned out exactly as he had interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. We'll skip the recounting of his dreams and bump to verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven uh, lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Now, let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming up and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials, officials. So Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. But without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphanath Paneah, and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. 
Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and, my father's, and all my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. God, we thank you for your word that tells us of your plan. We ask now that you would open our hearts to it, open our minds to it, Where we have need of conviction, comfort, or change, would you bring that to us this morning, Father, by your Spirit? Amen. Dave did a great job last week reminding us of the importance of trusting God in dark places, encouraging us to remember God's love and to choose obedience no matter what might come, just as Joseph did. And last week, we ended at the end of chapter 40 with Joseph still in an Egyptian dungeon, forgotten by the cupbearer who had promised to remember him. And this week starts off telling us that two full years had passed. That that construction there of two full years is interesting. It seems to imply that the two years wasn't just an approximate time frame, but that perhaps the events of chapter 41 happened almost on the anniversary of the events of chapter 40. So I wonder if perhaps Joseph is sitting in that dungeon and maybe it's the time of year when the crops are just starting, starting to sprout, or maybe it's the time of year when they're being harvested. We don't know. Maybe it's uh, Pharaoh's birthday, so maybe the whole country is getting ready for the birthday celebration. But whatever markers would have been on it, I wonder if Joseph is sitting there in that dungeon thinking, man, Two years ago, when it was this time of year, he said he'd remember me. Two, two years ago, this time of year, there was some hope. Two years ago, but it doesn't seem like it now. And Joseph is still sitting in that jail waiting. He'd gotten pretty good at waiting, hadn't he? It's been over a decade here in chapter 41. It's been over a decade since he had dreams about his family bowing down to him. Uh, Over a decade since his brothers beat him, threw him in a cistern, and sold him as a slave. 
He then worked for years as a slave, faithfully serving in Potiphar's house and seeing God's blessing there, only to be wrongfully accused when he responded rightly to temptation and thrown into a dungeon. Here in the dungeon, he's been discharging his duties. He's been working faithfully, and he had hope of deliverance. And I wonder if that hope of deliverance is starting to fade. And at precisely that time, Pharaoh has a dream. These four words in verse 1 kick off a chain of events that will change the course of Joseph's life, that will move his father and his 11 brothers, the entire nation of Israel at this point, to the land of Egypt. These are four words that even begin to directly set the stage for the next 400 years of the history of God's dealing with his people. So one sentence into this chapter, Joseph is in effect reminded that though he might think he knows what's happening tomorrow, God has planned something different. One act of God ends Joseph's long waiting and provides a stark reminder that though Joseph doesn't know when, Joseph doesn't know how, God's plan for him is to bring fruitfulness in response to his faithfulness. This plan begins with Joseph in the dungeon and Pharaoh asleep in his bed. I love the juxtaposition of that. I love imagining what it would be like for Joseph to be down in the pit where he gets the crumbs of what's left over from the worst of society and how far apart that is from Pharaoh who's getting the best of the best, who is ensconced in luxury all the time. They're seemingly so far apart. But in this opening verse of chapter 41, their situations are right next to each other and their worlds are about to collide because God is at work. And God's at work to show his power. There are three main ways that even in this dream, God is showing his power. And I'm grateful to Walter Brueggemann for some of his insights into just how startling this dream would have been to Pharaoh. It's not a simple nightmare, this dream. It's not something that Pharaoh would have just woken up from and said, Wow, what did the chef feed me last night? i got to tell him not to give me that dish anymore. This is, that was weird. This, this is beyond that type of a situation. This dream is a direct message to Pharaoh. It's a direct message to someone who was considered a god in the day. To someone who ruled the superpower with absolute authority. This dream represents the undoing of normal day-to-day functioning of the empire of Egypt. It's an instant upsetting for Pharaoh of what he had known. And it's a clear demonstration that God has absolute control over any ruler, any nation, any system, any time. Shows that in three ways. First way that God's power is really clearly seen here is in the directness of the message to Pharaoh. As you read this passage, just stop and think for a minute. How often did Pharaoh have somebody come into his throne room and deliver unvarnished bad news? 
Not that often, right? Despotic rulers put layers of insulation between themselves and devastating news. It's not like an aide would have been real eager to run into this pharaoh who could, uh, whose word was law, who was considered, again, a god. They're not going to run in and say, hey, bad news, something bad's going to happen, and I don't know anything to do about it, uh, but I just wanted to let you know. In a dream, God cuts through all of those layers of insulation. And brings news that would have been disorienting and devastating to Pharaoh. In the place where he would have felt safest and most secure, his very bedroom. Secondly, these dreams not just cut through all of the bubbles of uh, control that Pharaoh had Uh, built up around himself, but these dreams strike at the very source of Pharaoh's power. They strike at the Nile. You see the Nile time and time again in these dreams. The cows are coming up out of the Nile. Um, The the reeds by the Nile, and the grain would have been growing by the Nile. You see, for us, when we think about a river, in our context, the river we're most likely to think about is what? The Mississippi, because it's literally right down the street. And here, how it works for the Mississippi is rain falls on the land. The overflow, what's left over, flows into the river. So our crops come not from the river, but from the rain. It was the opposite in Egypt in, around the Nile. The water didn't come from the sky in Egypt. It was a desert. The river didn't receive the overflow of the land. The land received the overflow of the river. The flooding of the Nile on a regular annual basis is what kept Egypt prosperous. It's what kept them fed. It's what kept Pharaoh in power. They depended on it. For us, the river is something that's fun to go look at. For them, the river was life. And the devastation in Pharaoh's dreams are coming from the source of life for them. And the last thing is, the third way that we see uh, how God is showing his power in this dream is that these dreams leave Pharaoh disturbed, but not actually informed. So not only does he not know what this, uh, not only does he know that something bad is coming, but he doesn't know exactly what it is. And when he goes and he calls on the best and the brightest of the land, they can't help him out either. Verse 8, Pharaoh told the magicians, the wise men, his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Pharaoh goes to bed and everything's fine. Just another day. Twice in the night, he's woken by dreams that are disturbing and confusing. Maybe he thinks, that's okay, I'll, I'll ask my guys about it in the morning and they'll, they'll figure it out for me. Then he asks them and they can't. So he's not really faring any better than he was in the middle of the night. How powerful is Pharaoh feeling now? When is the last time that you were suddenly confronted with the fact that you're not as powerful as you might like to think you are? 
Where does your mind go when that happens? Where does your heart go when that happens? Does it go to fear and worry? What if? What if this ends up going that way and I don't want it to go that way and I can't stop it from going that way because I'm not as powerful as I'd like to think. Do you go to anger? It's easier sometimes to go to anger, isn't it? Because lashing out at something that has nothing to do with what the actual problem is is a way that we can mask our own fear and our own weakness. Or maybe... Does it just paralyze you? Does it take you to a place where you can't do anything and you can't escape? When we're confronted with our own lack of power, our own lack of control, our utter weakness, we do well to remember that though we don't know when, though we don't know how, God's plan is always fruitfulness for those who demonstrate faithfulness. And here in Genesis 41, God is showing his power to advance his plan. God is advancing his plan in what happens in this chapter. Joseph being sold into slavery, Joseph being sent to the dungeon is just one little piece. It's one small step in God's plan for all of creation, for all of time. And though it's only a small step in God's big plan, this is a huge step for Joseph. For Joseph, it's a part of God's plan that specifically applies to him and that God specifically told him about in one of those dreams so long ago when he was receiving adulation from sheaves, from sun, from moon, from stars. Can you imagine being Joseph in the midst of verse 14? So Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. You're Joseph. You're minding your own business down in the jail, just like you do every day. You're doing your chores. You're making sure people are doing what they're supposed to do and things are where they're supposed to be. All of a sudden, somebody comes down and grabs you and says, hey, you're coming with us. And you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, this probably isn't good. And then they throw you in the bathtub and you're thinking, okay, if they were going to kill me, they probably wouldn't clean me up first. They shave him. They clean him up. They put fresh clothes on him and they put him before Pharaoh. I wonder if Joseph is thinking as he puts that robe on after being cleaned up, I wonder if he's thinking, man, the last time I wore clothes this nice, it it was in Potiphar's house when his wife accused me and, and grabbed my cloak as I ran away. All of a sudden, in a matter of what, an hour? An afternoon at the most? This piece of God's plan that Joseph would have been waiting for is rushed forward. But of course, God's plan is much bigger than just what Joseph sees. It stretches back to the beginning of time, and it extends from Joseph to us here today and beyond. From the very beginning and for all time, God is acting to advance his plan for humanity. And God's plan for humanity is to gather a people to himself. Not because of anything those people have done, but because God is good, because God is gracious. God's plan began in the garden when he created Adam and Eve, when he created these people for himself, and he blessed them and he told them to be fruitful. That was his plan for them. And of course, they responded with rebellion and sin, which on the surface might have seemed to totally destroy God's plan, 
But God's next move was to provide for them. And just like Mike prayed, God didn't have a plan B. It was his plan to provide for his people and to gather to himself worshipers of him. God advanced that uh, by calling Abraham to himself. And then in the birth of Isaac and in Joseph's father, Jacob, as setting them up as the patriarchs of those that God would call his people. God had a plan for the nation of Israel that they would form the core of this people that God is calling to himself. And that in so doing, the nation of Israel would showcase to a watching world what it looks like to be one of God's. And that they would invite everyone into that beautiful relationship. Joseph didn't know any of that. He didn't know any of the ways that God was advancing his cosmic plan when he was sitting in that dungeon. He didn't know that the next steps would be God bringing uh, Joseph's whole immediate family. At that point, the entire nation of Israel, 70 people. God would bring them down to Egypt so that they could survive this famine. Joseph had no way of knowing that over the next 400 years they would grow from a family to a huge nation. God, Joseph had no way of knowing that ultimately God would intervene again in history in powerful and unexpected ways, showing in the Exodus that his people will be liberated from slavery so that they can come to himself. Joseph could have had no clue of how his faithfulness would ultimately result in fruitfulness for his children's 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 children hundreds of years away. Joseph doesn't know when or how, but he experiences God advancing his plan. He experiences God bringing fruitfulness to those who demonstrate faithfulness. Here's the thing, Lakewood. Just like Joseph, we don't know when, we don't know how, God might be moving his plan forward. We can see glimpses of it here and there, right? We can see a piece of the puzzle and another piece, and sometimes they even come together. But as Joseph is listening to and interpreting Pharaoh's dream, you know, maybe he can see a couple pieces. Maybe he can think, wow, uh, maybe my family is going to be impacted by this famine. Maybe part of the reason I'm here in Egypt is so my family can be saved. Maybe Joseph is thinking that far ahead. There's no way he's thinking 400 years into the future, much less 1,500 or 3,500 years into the future where we would be standing here today talking about how God was advancing his plan. And in the same way, Lakewood, we have no clue how God is advancing his plan today. But just because we don't see it we don't understand it because we don't have all the pieces and we can't fit them together. Let's never think that it's not happening. Let's remember as a church and as a society that God is advancing his plan. If he uses small things to do that, how much more does he use the big things to do that? When we trust God, when we remain faithful to Him, though we don't understand what's going on, we will see His plan for fruitfulness come about. But let's remember that we don't know when or how that fruitfulness will come. 
let's not forget that often God's fruitfulness actually comes in the midst of difficulty or pain. God brings fruitfulness from pain. Let's look at the end of this chapter, verse 52, where Joseph makes this explicit. Joseph names the second of his sons to be born to him, and he names him Ephraim. The word Ephraim is is a name related to the idea of bearing fruit or being fruitful. And in the naming, in verse 52, Joseph says this, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. As we've seen in the beginning of Joseph's story, Egypt was a land of suffering, of hardship for him. It represented being wrongly ripped away from his family, wrongly accused, wrongly imprisoned. But in that land of suffering, Joseph consistently acts nobly. He responded with faithfulness. He responded with obedience to each situation that comes his way. And God is, as we have said throughout, the hero of the story. And God brings fruitfulness. And what amazing fruitfulness do we have outlined for us here in this chapter? At the time Joseph is naming his second son, let's just take a look at where he's at. He's second in command over the greatest empire that the world knew at the time. He's been given the full regalia of that position. He's now got a wardrobe that even exceeds his technicolor dream coat that he got from dad years ago. He's been given a wife of royal position that cements his status. And he's literally been driven around in a chariot with people running in front of him saying, Hey, this guy coming behind me is really awesome, so everybody pay attention. He has overseen and managed the accumulation of grain on a scale so immense that he literally stopped keeping track of it. He's seen fruitfulness positionally, socially, professionally. With two sons being born, he's also seeing fruitfulness in his family. Indeed, God is bringing fruitfulness from pain. And I love how in verse 52, Joseph specifically says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. He doesn't try to take credit. He doesn't even try to share it. He doesn't forget that all that he has comes from God. As he names his son, he says it is because God has made me fruitful. He could have claimed some credit. He could have said, hey, God gave me some opportunities. He opened some doors and I walked through them. He wouldn't have been totally wrong in such a claim. Joseph does have significant responsibility here, and his actions have been right. But he gives all the credit for all his fruitfulness to God. And it's not a surprise to us that he does that in verse 52, because he does the same when he first appears in Pharaoh's court. He gives God the credit when it takes guts. In verse 16, when he responds to Pharaoh's expectation that he can give an interpretation to this dream, when the ruler of the world brings this imprisoned slave in and says, hey, you can help me out here, right? The first words out of Joseph's mouth are, no, actually I can't. But God can. If Joseph is willing to give God and God alone the credit 
when he's nothing but a prisoner cleaned up for a royal audience. It's no wonder, it's no surprise that Joseph gives God all the credit when he's got the world by the tail. Are we willing? Are you willing to give God that much credit? Am I willing to trust God that much? Demonstrating faithfulness to Him, even when the fruitfulness seems so far off and so distant that I don't know if it will ever come. God's plan is always to bring fruitfulness to those who demonstrate faithfulness. Though it's entirely possible that that fruitfulness won't even come in this lifetime, though the teaching of Scripture is plain, that faithfulness to God in the short term more often brings trials and hardship and suffering than it brings ease and success and comfort, though that is the case, oh God, make us faithful. I wonder, what do you need to do this week to respond with faithfulness to what God is calling you to do? Take a minute, pray, ask Him. God, where are you calling me to be faithful? God, what do I need to do? Let's ask Him that together. God, speak to us now as a church and as individuals in just a moment of of silence. Let us know what you would have us to do to be faithful. God, would you make us a faithful people, we pray. God, would you make us faithful to believe what you have said about yourself, faithful to believe that you are good, that you love us deeply. Would you make us faithful, God, to hold fast to your sovereignty, firmly convinced that whatever may come, it comes only through your hand and at your permission. God, would you make us faithful to live lives of love as you have called us to, as you have commanded us to. Consistently, eagerly laying down our rights, foregoing our preferences, giving up our very selves for those around us, especially for those with whom we would disagree with those we might call our rivals or even our enemies. You have called us, God, to love them. Make us faithful in doing so. God, make us a faithful people, trusting that in your time, in your way, you will bring fruit for your glory alone. Amen.